Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart and inspires you to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Real Life Church, it's Pastor Jim. It's good to be with you again. Thanks to all of you who showed up and helped with our big Halloween party last week. We saw over a thousand people visit our campus. Thanks to all of you who volunteered and who brought friends and who poured time into that. That was a great outreach. And then thanks to all of you who donated candy because we took the leftover candy down to Glendora Avenue to give it out to kids who are trick-or-treating down there. And we gave out another thousand invitations to church. So it is probably within one week of the year that we extend more invitations than any other time of the year. Uh, and so I'm, I'm so thankful for all of you who helped with that. Thanks so much. And uh, um, let's, uh, let's take a minute. We're going we're gonna to dive into a new series today, a new brief series on the book of James. And we're going to look at somebody whose life was radically transformed by his experience of Jesus. And he then tells us what, what a transformed life looks like so that our lives might be transformed and we might transform others. Uh, but as we get to the text together, let's pray. Pray with me. Jesus, I do thank you that you call us into life and faith with you and that as we follow you, uh, you do change us in good and healthy and growing ways. And I pray that you would continue to transform our hearts. Make us the people that we long to be, the people that we were made to be. Use our lives, changed as we are, to point towards you. Jesus, we ask your special blessing and guidance for all those uh, out there trying to uh, change and transform the lives of others, especially those who work in the educational system, uh, for teachers and administrators who work in the schools. We ask that you'd oversee them and give them wisdom uh, to make good and healthy decisions. Give them loving and compassionate hearts and protect them from exhaustion. God, watch over their, their calling. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. We're going uh, to spend a few weeks in the book of James here. So let's, uh, let's set up the context. Let's talk about who this is. James was the brother of Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary. So remember, uh, Mary uh, was a virgin when she conceived Jesus, and but then she and her husband went on to have other children. And there's a moment in the Gospels where Mary and the other kids come to get Jesus because they they uh, are distrustful of him. They're, they're not committed to him. Uh, and Jesus has this famous line, and he says, who are my mother and brothers, those who do the will of God? Uh, but then later, James, the brother of Jesus, will become a great leader in the church of Jerusalem, one of the the pillars of the early church. And so you, you can imagine what kind of transformation must have gone on for that to happen. You try to convince one of your siblings that you are the Messiah and the chosen one of God and see how far they follow you. And the fact that James went through this conversion of at first not believing his brother to becoming a great preacher and leader in the early church is a very convicting proof that uh, there was something true to the story of Jesus that even James uh, came to believe it. And as, as James writes this, 
you have to keep in mind the, the context of Jerusalem. This was where, this was the heart of Jewish worship and faith. And the Jewish faith rested on God's law. God gave the law to Moses and the entire practice of the Jewish faith was obedience to the law and sacrifices, uh, animal sacrifices or sacrifices of, of uh, produce from their crops when they failed to follow the law and then returning back to obedience to the law. So there's a very strict context of legalism in Jerusalem that James would have dealt with. Just as we see Jesus in conflict with the Pharisees day in and day out, uh, they were the religious legalists. So James speaks into a context of those who primarily knew God through the law. But in Jesus, the world has changed. And now God's grace is abundant. We, we are no longer bound to the law, as the Apostle Paul would say. We can no longer, uh, we no longer attempt to earn our way to God or earn our salvation because that's all a failure anyway. Instead, Jesus has died for us on the cross so all of our guilt is taken off of us and placed onto him. And now we're completely free. We're completely forgiven. But James wants us to know that in that freedom, we now have uh, the calling to live a changed and transformed life. And so James is going to speak to us about what that kind of transformed life looks like. Um, the great reformer of the 16th century, Martin Luther, did not like the book of James. He called it a, a letter uh, made of straw. In other words, it's lightweight. It's, uh, it's, it's not strong. It's not sturdy because it's all a series of commands about what to do and what not to do. And Luther wanted letters about grace, about how God did it all and we can't do anything. But, but James wants to paint a picture of the life lived after we know Jesus, after we know that Jesus has saved us. What do we do then? And James' answer is that you have been set free. You have been changed. Now live a life that changes others. And that's James' vision, a changed life that changes lives. And that's what we're going to talk about in this series, what it looks like to live a changed life that changes lives. Uh, and we know that James' life was changed profoundly because the ancient historian Eusebius tells us that uh, James spent so much time in prayer that his knees became hard like camel's knees. And they they referred to James as old camel knees because he spent so much time on his knees in prayer that he wore calluses onto, onto his knees. And so here is a man transformed in uh, humility and dedication and obedience to God. So that's what we're going to look at. And the, the book reads like uh, a little bit like the book of Proverbs in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's a series of teachings and instructions, uh, sometimes considered to be independent of each other. Sometimes they're tied together by a theme, but they hop around a little bit and primarily addressed to an audience that has been scattered. Um, he begins by saying to those, uh, those who are uh, scattered uh, elsewhere in the land. So there's a, a possibility that this is written after 70 AD when the temple is torn down and people are scattered. Uh, or it might actually be written to, to Gentiles uh, who are elsewhere in the world, uh, but who have converted to the Christian faith. Um, in either, either case, uh, this, is, uh, this is the letter of James, a series of commands about what to do and what not to do. And here's, here's how I think about James. Here's how I picture his life. Um, there's a, a French painter who, who you've maybe heard of and seen his paintings uh, named Claude Monet. And Monet changed the history of painting 
because he started to paint in a radically different way than those who had come before him. If you go back and look at the art of the Middle Ages, it, it's very much two-dimensional. One of the great developments of the Renaissance was the uh, return to the three-dimensional art, the, the sculptures, of the ancient Greco-Roman world, and the ability to capture dimensions in painting so they no longer appeared flat. And the, the goal in the portraiture of the late Middle Ages was to be photorealistic, to get as close as you could to capturing reality. And the more realistic painting looked, the better the painter was. Well, Monet brought an end to all that. And he created a famous painting called Impression, Sunrise. And it's this little image of a boat on the water at sunrise. And it's blurry because he began what's called impressionistic painting. And he just had the sense that the way painting ought to be done, instead of trying to capture photorealism, the, the way to do painting is to capture what light is doing and to capture the, the changing and um, temporary nature of light and to capture a little bit more of what our eyes really see because our eyes catch a lot of blurriness. A lot of our periphery is blurry. And so that's what he does in Impression at Sunrise. And when he painted it, the French people ridiculed him, just made fun of him. This one art critic wrote a dialogue between the critic and someone else in which he says, now, what did you say the name of this painting was? And, oh, it's the name of the painting is Impression. He goes, yeah, that's good because I only have a vague impression of what this even is. And they make fun of it because it's not, it's not realistic. And now, of course, after that, Impressionism became the primary style of a painting in the European world. French people made, made fun of people who didn't paint that way. Well, so what happened in that is that Monet's vision for reality was changed. His vision for the way things were and the way things should be changed. And that changed everything that he did. And as a consequence, he changed all of the art world. Everybody now looks at his works and in some way tries to repeat them or is shaped by them or uh, is, is uh, influenced by them. And that's James' vision for the Christian life, that we would catch a vision of Jesus and the way life really is and the way life should be. And it would change everything that we do, that we would live life differently on a day-to-day -day basis. And because of that, all the world around us would be changed. That our vision of Jesus would change everyone else's vision as well. Jesus' call to us is that we would love God and love other people. And as we live into that vision, it should change everything that we do and everything that we live for. And the way we live our lives ought to change everyone around us. That's what James is after. That's why he, he goes through this list of, here are behaviors appropriate to a Christian. It's not because James is a legalist. It's because he's a changed life that wants to change lives. Okay, so let's get into it. We're going to read James chapter 1, and I'm going to start at verse 19. There's some introductory uh, material, uh, but as James really starts to get into painting a picture of what a life lived right looks like, um, he starts talking about the issue of anger. And this is in verse 19. We're going to read through um, a few of his recommendations of how to live life. And you'll see the thread that ties them all together is living a coherent life in which our behaviors match our beliefs. Here we go. James chapter 1, verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Uh, he gets pretty pretty quickly into anger, 
because anger is one of the most natural overflowings of the human heart in which we make mistakes. Um, what, what anger often does is uh, it's as though we went to go and water a flower and we turned on a fire hose to do it. And it's just too much. And instead of nourishing the flower, it ends up killing it. Uh, a lot of our anger is an attempt to express a discontent with the world. The world isn't right and it needs to be set right because either it's dangerous or it's threatening or it's insulting. And often we overly respond in our anger. Not that what's at the heart of the anger is wrong, but the way it, it comes out is too much. Uh, I remember when I was in seminary, there was a guy named Eric, and uh, Eric had a naturally loud voice. You could hear him through your window across campus. Uh, when he would laugh, he was too loud. When he would talk about the weather, he was too loud. So you can imagine if he got angry, that volume created sort of a, a, a fire hose of noise. And I remember this one time we were sitting around in the, the school cafeteria at Princeton Seminary, uh, where I was in school, and we were debating theology in a, in a friendly way. There was no animosity at the table, but we were arguing about some point in theology we'd been reading about, and Eric was at the table, and so he was louder than everybody else. And uh, somebody walked by and heard him and thought we were really in a fight just because of his volume. And she turned and she said, what are you so angry about? And, and Eric, realizing that he was just loud, he wasn't angry at all. He was just loud. He said, uh, he said, I'm not angry. I'm just very passionate about my opinions and I want you to have to hear all of them before you share any of yours. And uh, that's kind of, and we all knew he was joking because he had another two octaves he could go up if he needed to. Um, but that's how our anger comes across. It just comes across as too much. And, and often what's, what's wrong is not that the, the, the motivation at the heart of it is wrong, but we just lack the vocabulary the, the rhetorical strength to communicate in a way that can be heard what we're feeling. Uh, if you've ever heard somebody try to define a word, but they don't know the definition, so they just keep repeating the word and it doesn't get any clearer, that's often what our anger does. Well, we can't make our point clearly, so we raise our voice or we sulk uh, and we with, withdraw. And either way, what we're, what we're doing is we're, we're lacking the vocabulary that will accurately communicate what we want to say. Uh, and so we, we, we burst out in anger. The, the little uh, tantruming two-year-old just doesn't have enough words to explain what they want or why they're upset. And so it comes out as anger. And most of us spend our lives uh, doing much the same. Uh, most of us spend our lives not, not learning a, a good emotional vocabulary uh, to work our way through anger. Uh, and honestly, James James has, starts here because I think he's going right to the heart of the problems of humanity. Uh, look at the world today. Look at the polarization of American society. Uh, look at how in the, the burgeoning of social media in the last 20 years has just given us a, abundant groundwork for being insulting and a, a terrible and threatening to one another. Social media has given humanity the opportunity to be in communication with one another at a greater level, and we're not using it well. Look at the conflicts in the Middle East today. There's a, a long history of anger and retribution that has existed between people groups, and it has continued to boil over to a point where all they have left for one another is anger. Um, I'm going to be 
teaching a seminar at the church. This is live in person, not online. So if you're nearby, you can come down uh, this, this Wednesday about the situation in the Middle East. And I did an interview with a member of our church who's serving in a Christian mission in Israel right now. He's over there with a medical uh, mission team that is, it's uh, Jewish and Christian doctors who are caring for Muslim children in a hospital uh, as a way, first to care for the kids and secondly, to, to bridge the gap between cultures uh, that have long seated centuries old resentment towards one another. Uh, so if you're in town, you might want to come down on Wednesday and hear that. And I've got an interview with him that I recorded that I'm going to show on Wednesday. James is right at the heart of human need. Uh, when we are frustrated with the world, uh, often we turn on a, a fire hose of emotion and it doesn't do what we want it to do. It makes things worse rather than better. And, and James says, the reason you want to be slow to speak and quick to listen is because it will bring about the righteousness that God desires. And, and you know what a righteous life look like, looks like. It's, it's the kind of life that you're, you're happy to describe at their funeral. Uh, you know, I've, I've been to more funerals than most people will go to in uh, my line of work. And um, it, you've, I've listened to people struggle to describe a person who spent most of their lives angry. And, um, you know, they just struggle for words. Say, you know, uh, you know what, uh, you know what I could say about, uh, about Bill there is uh, uh, always ironed his shirts. Just a good shirt ironing guy, not a wrinkle on it. You know, they, they struggle for a description of somebody who really, your primary memories are, he was mad all the time. Um, and, and James knows that right at the heart of human conflict, right at the heart of what most of humanity struggles with is a problem with anger. So that's where he goes first. Uh, but his goal is to talk about a changed life that changes lives. And so maybe that first step for us is to be slow to speak and quick to listen, to be slow to anger. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth. And the, the Greek word for uh, filth here is uh, hruparios, which is um, like picture an old shabby, a dirty shirt that has holes in it and it's fraying and it's faded and it's just not good anymore. It's not good. If you wear it, it looks junky. Uh, that's what uh, the word is. That, get rid of moral shabbiness. And the evil that's, that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And this is, this is the heart of James' message. Make your life coherent so that your behaviors match your beliefs. Uh, and I think it's interesting that he says, uh, uh, apply to yourself humbly the word planted in you. Because if you've already accepted the word, it's interesting that you then have to be humble about uh, uh, accepting it. And I think it's because there's a, there's a real difference in we who read the scriptures or hear God's word and accept that it's true versus we who hear God's word and apply it to ourselves. Because it's easy enough to accept God's word as true and then apply it to somebody else. It takes humility to apply it to ourselves. And this is perhaps James' first remedy to our, our problem of conflict within us. Be humble enough not to be mad at your neighbor for what they do. Instead, apply it to yourself first. Have you ever gone to church and sat next to somebody whose elbow was cocked and loaded and they were just waiting for the pastor to share a good message? So they go, mm, that, that's for you. That's what he just said, mm, right there. Mm. Oh, he did it again. Mm, mm. Right? They got the, mm, right? Mm, 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 mm. Um, <laughs> at one point, the Apostle Paul 
describes the Christian life as, as wearing armor for, prepared for battle. And you wear the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth and the, the elbow of condemnation. <laughs> Better listen, right? It takes humility to begin by hearing the word and saying, that's not about somebody else. That should be about me first. Jesus says it this way. Don't try to take a log out of somebody, a speck out of somebody else's eye when you have a log in your own. Start by applying it to your own life. And, and part of what will curb our anger towards one another is self-reflection. When we realize that we ourselves are not so righteous that we can stand in judgment over one another. Uh, as Jesus will say in the Gospel of John, uh, let whoever sin throw the first stone. And when you realize I, I'm not qualified to throw the first stone, it might curb uh, our anger a bit. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after look at him, looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. Uh, and I love that description. That is James in Jerusalem in the heart of the Pharisees and the heart of the legalists saying, the law has always constrained us. But now, in light of Christ and his death on the cross, we understand the perfect law gives freedom. The law is about freedom, not about uh, constriction. Uh, whoever uh, looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. It's, uh, it's not a perfect metaphor. You look in a mirror and forget who you are. That's kind of a strange one. But, but you understand you understand what he's talking about here. Uh, it's, it's easy enough to commit yourself to something and then walk out in the context of the world and forget what you're committed to and live in a different way than what you said. Make sure that your behaviors match your beliefs. The beliefs that you have when you're quietly reading your Bible and praying, when you're in a, a moment of devotion by yourself, just you and Jesus, take those beliefs and let them translate into the way you live your life. Uh, don't just keep your faith in your prayer closet, keep it out, live it in the world. Um, there was a famous a psychology experiment where a psychologist put two lines uh, on a wall and uh, they, uh, they were the same length and they brought three people into the room to look at it and uh, all three of them stared at it. Uh, but what, what person A didn't know is that persons B and C were part of the experiment. They, they were not subjects, they were, they were experimenters themselves. And the first person, the person on whom the test was being done, would look at the two lines and say, um, I think they're the same length. And the second person would look at them and go, no, 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 they're different lengths, they're clearly different. Clearly the, you know, the top one is longer than the bottom one. And then the third person would say, yeah, that's right, the top one is longer than the bottom one, that's definitely the case. And then they'd go back to the first person, the person, the subject on whom the test was really being done and said, and say, now, what do you think? And often that person would change their mind. Often the person who had looked at the two lines and said they're the same length, but then heard their peers say something different, would change their minds to match what their peers said, even though they could tell looking right in front of them that the two lines were the same length. That's what James is talking about. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Immerse yourself in the scriptures and in prayer. Spend your life with Jesus. And as you go out into the world, don't lose what you're committed to, but live it out uh, in, the, in the world. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. So it sounds like James has now changed subjects. He's talked a little bit about anger 
And then he's talked about consistency, and you can see how that might relate to anger. Now it sounds like he's changed topics entirely, and he's talking about uh, how you use your words. But in fact, I think he's still on the same theme. I think all of this has to do with living a coherent life where our behaviors match our beliefs. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion, uh, and the word here for religion is thraskos in Greek, and uh, because of the way we use the word religion in modern-day America, I, I would not translate it that way. Uh, you could translate it worship, and that would probably resonate more with the way we use the word this will make more sense with the way we use the word worship than the way we use religion. So translate it this way, verse 27. Worship that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So again, now it sounds like he's wandering to another topic. He's gone from, you know, control your uh, tongue to care for orphans and widows. But the, the whole message is, is one message. Make sure your behaviors match your beliefs. Make sure your life is coherent, that your beliefs govern all the parts of your body, that that's what you have committed in your mind, committed to in your mind and your heart governs your tongue and your hands and your feet, that everything you do out in the world is tied together by what you believe you're committed to. James' life has been radically changed by the life of his brother, by the life of Jesus. And as a consequence, James is now trying to, to tell the world, look at the transformation that's happened. Your life should be transformed as well. If your life is incoherent, if your behaviors don't match your beliefs, no one's going to trust you or believe what you say. Um, those of us who have grown up with an older brother uh, sometimes know the um, the rough uh, play that comes uh, from uh, wrestling with an older brother. And you might have had that that terrible experience where your older brother takes your hand and playfully hits you with your own hand and says, why are you hitting yourself? Why are you hitting yourself? Right? They take your own hand and bang you with it. Why are you hitting yourself? Well, James is is saying, if you go out in the world and you you say that you follow the one who taught us to love God and other people, the one who taught us to live a life of grace, to love our enemies, to forgive those who wrong us. And then you live a bitter, angry life where you, you spend time uh, uh, attacking other people or ignoring the poor or not controlling your tongue and just saying whatever you want to. People are going to look at you, look at the church and say, why do they keep hitting themselves? Why do they keep hitting themselves? In other words, their their bodies are out of sync with their their minds. It's, it's like their body is being controlled by somebody else. And James doesn't want that. James wants us to live coherent lives, whole lives, where everything that we do matches what we say we believe. That's the picture that he's trying to, to paint for us. <clears throat> um, I remember um, when I was a teenager, um, I encountered somebody who was living a coherent life. Uh, he was a, a youth pastor when I was in high school. I joined a little church that had a tiny youth group and he came and worked at the church. I think he worked part-time because I don't think the church could afford a full-time youth pastor. And though he was college educated and he was smart and he was funny and he was talented and he could have been doing a lot of different things, he chose to give his life in a remote corner of Southeast Texas to caring for a small circle of teenagers. Um, 
And what I saw in him changed who I was. Because he believed in a God who cared for the least among us, people who were otherwise insignificant in the eyes of the world. And, and he lived it out. He didn't just say it, he lived it out. And because I saw him do that, that, that changed my life and my calling. I might not have become a pastor otherwise. It was his changed life that changed my life. And that's James' vision for all the rest of us, that our lives would be changed by our encounter with Jesus, and that we would then go out into the world changing the lives of others. The, the whole message of the gospel, Jesus' whole message is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law hangs on those two things. The perfect law that gives freedom hangs on those two things. If you love God, love other people. If you love other people, love God. It, it, it all comes together and that's the vision. And if you love God, what you're going to do is spend your life trying to reach lost children that he loves who might be changed through your changed life. And if you love other people, what you're going to do is try to connect them with the God who loves them and who can save them and heal them. That's what life is all about. And we do it most effectively when we live a coherent life, when our behaviors match our beliefs, when our lives are consistent, that because of our faith, we control our tongues, our hands and our feet, we use them to go out and care for people in need. We use our whole lives to paint a picture of the kingdom of heaven so that when people see it, they might be transformed that they themselves might be changed. Well, let's go do that. Pray with me. Thank you, Jesus, for calling us to live changed lives. Thank you that by the power of your spirit, we can be changed. We invite your spirit in. Jesus, thank you that you died for us on the cross. Thank you that we can live by your leading. Come in, Holy Spirit, and show us the path uh, we should take. And as we do so, change our lives and use them to change others. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Go be the church. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.